0: hello and welcome to wait what a podcast for the savage critic website i'm jeff lester and graham mcmillan and i are wrapping up our conversation about comics today by discussing final crisis uh grim and gritty trends in comic books and also talking some trash about alan moore so hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening there. I needed that extra second there to save the, the audio file, so. Okay, um, okay but you're sounding we're, better we're, Where are we? uh, Where That's were good. we? Where uh, were we? That's good. You were talking about the art for, for Blackest Night.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the art for Blackest Night, for me, is channeling Neil Adams in a lot of places, but there's also a lot of the other art that we've seen. You know, a lot of the other artists that have been on Green Lantern through the years. Mm-hmm. But in such a way that I feel that if I wrote about that, I would just sound like an idiot. <laughs> you know? If I was like, and you could see that he's really channeling atoms with this panel, here Infantino really shows up in his, you know, flash. I just feel, I, I feel very uncomfortable talking about that sort of thing. I, I think it's really hard to do that without coming across as pretentious and, and wrong-headed.
0: Hmm. well. Maybe that's something that I can do more since I'm feeling like the pretentious, wrong-headed guy these days with my comics reviews anyway. So uh, that, I, I should do that. Everyone
1: agrees with you. Come on. No,
0: no, no. I, I, <laughs> I'm not even saying it like it's a bad thing. I think it's actually kind of a – I think it might be a really good place to be these days. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And in fact, on that note, I'm going to talk uh, briefly about Leave Extraordinary Gentleman Century 1910. Did you read it? I did not. But really? Part of that, actively disliked Black Dossie. Oh.
1: And pretty much thought, this is not worth my while. I've never really loved League of Gen- Extraordinary Gentlemen anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but Black Dossie, I just... I wanted my life back. I thought <laughs> it was so... We are clever, look at us being clever. With no other point, I really disliked
0: it interesting that's fascinating I liked it more than you but perhaps I was just behind the curve because century 1910 um, which I made a point to like not read any of the annotations and I finally sat down and kind of I'd started it once or twice and kind of went eh I put it down and um, then picked it up again today and read it and uh, really didn't like it very much, but I also found myself thinking, hmm, you know, I'm not going to be able to re- recall this like clever metaphor now. Uh, <laughs> I kind of, I, I, cause it was kind of, um, the, the, the imagery that I had was Alan Moore trying to suffocate me f- with a pillow, but I can't remember if my point was that it was for sex play or he wanted to kill me. Um, and sadly, I can't recall what that's exactly a metaphor for. It wasn't that the. Book I'd, like,
1: I'd like to point out that um, having read Lost Girls, uh, that's probably both in Alan Moore's world. <laughs> Lost Girls proved to me that Alan Moore possibly only ever had sex once. <laughs> I, I, Lost Girls was not only the least sexy book about sex ever written, but it also felt like it was written by an alien who had read about sex, it was stunningly wrong
0: headed. <laughs> uh, uh, um, yeah, you've read Lost Girls, right? Yes, yes I have. Uh, and, and do, I...
1: do you do not agree that it's, it's just I don't know. It's honestly nothing nothing even interesting about sex is in that book.
0: Uh...
1: I, I I can't I can't tell you how disassociated I feel from that book.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I I will admit that I don't I don't think that I actually ended up, you know, popping a boner over it until like halfway through volume 2, which is, you know, 300 some odd pages of sex and footage and all sorts of craziness going on, but um that's really that's really funny. I didn't think that the problem with Lost Girls wasn't that he hadn't had sex. I think it's sort of the same problem that I had with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen century 1910, which is that Alan Moore can't conceive of anyone having sex but him. You know? Like, there's kind of a... Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen really did, like... As each progressive volume has gone on, it it's turned more and more from what I think Moore intended it to be and what he still thinks that it is, which is some sort of love letter to the vast um, wilderness of literature. Uh, it It is, in fact, somehow become just the opposite, like a strange love letter to alan moore from alan moore as i'm so glad you said that
1: that's what i was going to say it feels
0: like for me though it's always felt like a love letter to alan Moore. Uh, that could be that that certainly makes sense i certainly would be very slow in picking that up but um you know
1: but then again how much do you like alan moore because i've always been disappointed in alan moore i you know the one person who thinks that watchman isn't that good
0: I would, yes, I would say that I am definitely more pleased uh, with Alan Moore's work than you are. Um,
1: <laughs> I think everyone is more pleased with Alan Moore's work than I am.
0: Yeah, that, that could be the case because you're setting that bar there. That's kind of. Um, well, let's see. Uh, I would have to. I think s-
1: my problem with Watchmen is the same problem with uh, League, which is I think it's very clever, mm-hmm. but at no point do I get emotionally involved in any of the story. Therefore, it feels like I'm reading a textbook
0: all the way along. Interesting. No, I I was emotionally involved in Watchmen. Uh, I was emotionally involved in Swamp Thing. I think, um, you know, I would say most of the DC work I was involved with. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's a little icy. It's a little formalist. But I, I certainly believe in, in part because there's a certain level of... Um, Uh, I don't know... Um, a a kind of commitment stated over and over again in the beliefs of love and tenderness and value and virtue. Um, You know, so like half of Promethea worked for me, but somewhere along the line of the ABC stuff, it started not working for me. Like Tom Strong did, has, despite every aspect of that character I would like, the... The book overall, like I didn't, I very consistently did not enjoy it, like repeatedly. And then, of course, Lost Girls I thought was surprisingly awful. I thought that I thought that From Hell was quite good, but again, not in a I care about the characters kind of way, but but really just kind of the the ambition and the scope. And actually, to the extent that I did care about the characters, because you know Eddie Campbell's such a, a virtuosic. Sort of cartoonist, you know? Yeah. Um, well,
1: uh, From Hell's the one book where I agree with the hype. Mm-hmm. I think From Hell's wonderful, but that's it as far as Moore's concerned with me.
0: Wow. That is it. That's the only thing, huh? That's,
1: that's the only thing. <laughs> uh, whatever happens to The Man of Tomorrow, I think is uh, really just grim and and humorless and kind of hateful in a way i i I don't i mean i see why lots of people think it's you know a nostalgic goodbye childhood everything Mm -hmm. but it takes such pleasure in destroying it in the end that i i am i it leaves me entirely cold
2: huh
0: interesting i can i guess i can see that i really what's weird to me is that's one where to me the intent like it doesn't really seem that cold. It doesn't seem that vicious. It's just kind of a uh, attempt to finally get to do something with these characters that again have sort of been locked in stasis for a while, and so everyone kind of gets their moment. It's pretty quick, but everyone kind of gets it. I think I think the problem is is that you know as kind of a callow youth, uh, Moore had a very much kind of an idea that you can kind of sort of do you can do both and i think it's real com- it's real common to bendis i think it's common to i think even morrison has this same idea of like you know what you can be really super sweet and nostalgic on one page and then on the next page you can you know have dr light raping you know uh, the adams girlfriend uh which admittedly if i recall was not a morrison comic i know but, um, but you know, I think, I think comic book writers these days and going all the way back to probably Moore and Miller and that whole gritty style is like, yeah, you can have a sense of wonder and you can actually uh, have completely awful cynical stuff happening on the next page. And it's that juxtaposition that makes it work. And I think the older I get, the more I'm like, no, it actually sort of shows that they don't work. Um, and the thing that yeah, I find... And
1: I think all you're really demonstrating is that the two don't belong together because all that makes it work, quote-unquote, is the dissonance between the two. Right, right. It, they never seem like they belong together. It's like, oh, look, you put the two together. That's shocking. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Well, the thing that I find really fascinating with Moore is he quite clearly... Decided after those early days that, that that was kind of a mistake. I do think that he did see a shortcoming in it um, that a lot of other people still working in comics or have been working in comics for longer than he did when he realized that that was kind of a, a dead end. Um, you know, I think, I think Morrison does a lot of that even while he's like making noises like, oh no, I'm not. I'm really like, oh no, you've got to show how bad things are and then you know, you bring in the virtue, and you know, it was like the it was like the last three pages that, of Batman some, and Robin for me. What's that?
1: That's something that uh, Jeff Johns does a lot for me. I think Jeff Johns genuinely thinks that he is bringing back a sense of wonder, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, he always shows something beyond the pale.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And that's
1: what sticks with you more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you, you don't think oh, great, it's, you know, flashes back, he'll clean everything up, you're kind of left with, wait, hang on, are all, all the villains are snorting coke and raping people.
2: Right, exactly. You know,
1: it's a, it, they don't cancel each other out in the way that I think a lot of people think they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're just left with this, but they're still, you know, probably still doing that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think when you bring in a level of realism, even if you're, you know, you're only bringing in with the bad guys and you're saying they're bad,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's still out there. <laughs> Yeah. Unless your unless your story is, and then they make the world utopia, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, then you've not you've not done anything apart from just darkening it up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, I, one of the things about Final Crisis that still doesn't ring true to me is, I think it just permanently breaks Mary Marvel. Yes. Yeah, and- I, I think I think there's no way to make Mary, to write Mary Marvel the way that she was originally created now. I, she can never be the innocent person again. She can never be the young sister, or was she's a sister of Billy, right? Am I misremembering that?
0: Uh, she is not a sister because I think he was an orphan. I well, can- maybe no, maybe she's like a cousin. Hold on,
1: but, but she can never be the young innocent again, ever.
0: Right. No, you know what? You're, I think you're right. I think she actually is. Mary Batson is actually the twin sister of Billy Batson. There you go. My knowledge of Shazam is truly stunning. Dude, it went uh, from Mary Marvel to Sharon Ventura as she thing. It's kind of terrifying.
1: <laughs> really lame female characters. I'm there. And <laughs> Dazzler. Don't forget Dazzler. Oh yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, I I think
1: Final Crisis doesn't. Final Crisis' stated aims, which were pretty much evil wins and good wins after all, mm-hmm. aren't served by the story. Yeah. The story doesn't prove that. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, the story proved Darkseid took over for a bit, and then they kind of defeated him, maybe, possibly, but they never really explained it. Like, that was the, the thing that stuck with me when I re- reread Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. Final Crisis, as a narrative, completely falls apart at the end hmm Oh, yeah. Like, honestly, tell me what happens at the end of Final Crisis.
0: Yeah. Uh...
1: How was it get rid of Darkseid?
0: Well, I think Without if I'm...
1: Without looking at it again, how does it get rid no, of No, no,
0: no, 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 okay. I, I'm up for this. I think the, the point that, that uh, at least I picked up from reading the smarter people is, is that Darkseid essentially defeats himself. You know that that evil essentially collapses under its own weight. Uh, he ends up being, of course, shot by the bullet that um, he he of course gunned down Orion from backwards in time. You know, Batman plugs him with literally the he, he supplies the own weapon uh, that that undoes him. But he's also collapsing and decaying in Turpin's body as well. Um, I, I think Morrison's sort of trying to make this point that like. Evil collapses in under itself. And then there's sort of the second part of Final Crisis, which is the the weirdo vampire at the end of time, dude. Um, are you still here, by the way? I am still here, yeah. Okay, good. Thank goodness. It was so quiet there. Uh, the, the, the The space vampire at the end of time, which sort of represents entropy and death he also ends up being defeated by, you know, the power of music and song um, and Superman, you know, who then, you know, is able <laughs> to music reboot and song the and universe. Song. Yeah, music and song and Superman. I mean, that, that really seems to be the way that he, you know, they, they pull all those heroes in from the end of time. Uh, Superman is able to reboot the universe. And then the universe essentially gets sort of a restored from a save point that is just after Darkseid sort of, you know, collapsed. Um, but again, but, but no, is I, it
1: that's like it, How can it be? Because then everyone is like, then the world is fucked. So I, I took it as they managed to rebuild the universe from before all that happened. Like everyone remembered it happening, but essentially it never happened.
0: Right, exactly. Everyone remembers it happening, but they recover it from a certain save state, so to speak, and then. Because um, it ends with it ends with the biggest comment ever, which is
1: Superman wished for a happy ending. And that's poetic, and it's lyrical, and on your first reading, it's kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. But it explains away just far too much. Yeah. There's well, a happy ending, because Superman wanted there to be a happy ending.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I'm not a big fan of that ending. It makes sense in a... If you, if you want to portray Final Crisis as, like, a big mega event that is actually about, like, some Scottish comic book writer's battle with depression, I suppose, but um, where Dark side is literally Dark side and depression and crap and Superman is literally everything that's good in the world and essentially you have to focus on everything that's good, that the crap is always there in the world but it always defeats itself and good, which is never wins actually does manage to win basically by continuing to exist. I think you should have written the foreword for the book. No, I don't think I should have because (laughs) I think I just cobbled that together from like everything else I read on the fucking internet by smarter people. You know? (laughs) I, I, I mean... And and separate and apart from that, I would then have to spend a paragraph going, mind you, you're going to read that and think it sounds wonderful, and then be, but why am I disappointed for the next eighty or so pages? Why, you know, because it doesn't really hold forward as a story. I mean, uh, you know, Morrison's ambition is second to none, and the the levels of detail and thought that he puts into things is great, but it's kind of it's kind of half-baked. It's never a completely... It it, it doesn't...
1: Lots of things just don't work as a story.
2: Yeah.
0: For example, my
1: problem with the Darkseid thing is Darkseid dies after being shot because he's been dying for a while. Mm -hmm. But because the Black Racer comes to get him, because the Black Racer's chasing after the Flash, but for some reason gives up chasing after the Flash after he gets Darkseid. Right. Just because. I know! Like, it's kind of like... And it's like, what? And then, but you don't even have a... And then other people are like, hey, Barry, you're back. Because then you go straight to, and then we froze everyone and restarted the universe. Right. right. And it's also like, why did you freeze everyone if you're restarting the universe?
0: Yeah. Um, my theory is, of course, is that that Grant uh, is doing, Jeff Johns a big favor, and there's a huge chunk of this stuff that's going to come in in Blackest Night that we're not really aware of. But uh, Along the lines of what? I don't know. I think that space vampire dude who, like, is able to, like, raise the dead or whatever the hell that he does, I think he's tied to the Blackest Night stuff somehow. Oh, no. I was oh, just- if,
1: if that happens, I will throw heavy machinery. <laughs> at the if, if any thread from Final Crisis continues into Blackest Night, I will scream like Superman screams to kill the evil vampire. I I will I I will have a a nerd breakdown like you have never experienced because the whole Final final Crisis is, it's final. If Final Crisis literally directly leads into the next story then Well, but that's the idea, Graham. My mind is broken. My mind is broken. And also the real reason my mind I think will be broken will be Superman End story by wishing for a happy ending. Right. If Final Crisis literally leads it to another story, and Final Crisis, Superman doesn't get his wish,
0: he doesn't get a happy ending.
1: Well, but, uh,
0: but, okay, I guess but what I,
1: I understand your point, but mm-hmm. I think as soon as you say Final Crisis is a middle step to another story, you invalidate the end of Final Crisis, even in the poetic sense. Well, and I they literally are just like grunts. <laughs> Fuck you.
0: Well, okay, I could be misinterpreting things, but the way I took it was that between those two scenes, there's pretty much he jumps forward to the end of the universe, so everything else gets to be amped in there. I guess what I mean is for those for those final four or five pages to make any sort of quote unquote sense you're going to have... There's going to be other things that are going to fit into it, including, I suspect, Jeff Johns' Darkest Night. And it's not so much that Darkest Night builds into it, on it, or leads into it, leads out... of You know, the Final Crisis leads into Blackest Night. It's that Blackest Night is going to fold very neatly into it. So that by the time you get the final scene with the space vampire who's cackling and rubbing his hands, and you're kind of like... Why is this in the book? Where did this come from? Why do we have to deal with this part of things at all? You know, I mean, I understand it in a vague metaphorical sense, but what is this doing in the story? I think we'll have a better sense of that for Blackest Night. I think Blackest Night is going to lay a lot of the groundwork for what ends up happening in those five pages in a way that makes you go, "Oh, okay, it's not total. It's not totally crap after all." <coughs> Except I think See, it will be crap for me.
1: I think it is totally crap because I took all of that as happening before Black is Night.
0: But it's at the end of the universe.
1: But that's because, in my mind, the universe ended and then restarted. Uh,
0: well, it. <laughs> it restarts. Have I, have I just oh. your mind? You are, man. I'm serious. Why couldn't I have still been in the acid for this part of the conversation, <laughs> as opposed to the "oh, we're cutting in and out" sort of part of the conversation?
1: I feel like I feel like you should actually finish your sentry thing, man.
0: Nah, not
1: necessarily. No, no. Talk sentry. All right. Just tell me. Tell me why it's bad. We'll okay. do it quickly
0: here's my frustration about Century. is it is about the League, it takes place in 1910, um, and I think the problem that I start having with it, and admittedly, again, brain-dead, caveman, comic book critic, apart from the fact that it's supposed to be very grim, the idea is that it takes place in London in 1910, and uh, the league are trying to investigate all these uh, occult visions that suggest that um, that a, a dark, malevolent cult is going to be trying to form a, a moonchild. Uh, that will that and the passage of Halley's comet and the coronation of uh, the new coronation of the king is all going to you know end up being some horrific, terrible disaster. Uh, it, and in fact, what ends up happening is in a way all of that does happen in a way that we'll see played out I sh- i'm sure over two or three books but none of it really proves to be relevant that that more sort of he paints all this stuff like there's all this big stuff happening that the league's distracted by but what really ends up undoing everyone is the actual small and petty terrible things that end up happening to one woman in a you know seaside hotel in london in 1910 which sounds pretty great. The problem is—I was going to say that—that that
1: sounds more together and more interesting than all of the other League books.
0: Yeah, and and I think maybe could have been. I I think the problem becomes twofold. One is that the woman in the hotel is uh, Captain Nemo's daughter, um, who's escaped from Captain Nemo for reasons that I couldn't entirely follow, and has decided to take on. A new life, and basically starts working as this maid in this hotel because she's run off. But also the problem being that she is uh, Jenny Diver, essentially from Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera. So um, there's a weird meta thing with Moore, of course, in that here he is after having used the Black Freighter um, and Tales of the Black Freighter as his main analogy in Watchmen. Here you get this kind of interesting thing where, literally, uh, the woman is singing about the Black Raider, uh, and the end of the book uh, is this sort of Armageddon that Jenny Diver sings about in her, whatever the hell it's called, the the tales of the what is the Black Raider song? <laughs> Do you know offhand just, the one I'm talking I'm about? Sorry, no. It's you know the it's thing that's stupid. So no. No, it it you know the thing that's the thing that's really embarrassing about it is I had been listening to a lot of Nina Simone recently and that song uh, is covered uh on the CD I've been listening to so bef- for about two weeks before I read this Nina Simone has been singing this song that is all it's from the point of the maid and she's sneering about the fact that she's you know that the black freighter is gonna come in and kill everyone and she's At the end of the song, she's Pirate Jenny. She walks out, and she's the one who basically says whether anyone lives or dies. And um, it's an amazingly powerful song. And through the miracle of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Century 1910, it becomes an incredibly trite story. You know, it, it becomes... It becomes the big failure of of the league, maybe of the league books overall, and certainly this league book is is the idea that um, the Captain Nemo's daughter being Jenny Diver is just something that rubs me the wrong way. I've all, I've never been happy with people who break out this idea that all the fiction characters they start doing double duty, and you see bits and pieces of this in Century, where it's hinted at that um, you know uh, Prospero that, from
1: that has always been a more thing for me. The idea that, especially League, has, has been the, they all exist in the same universe, and they met, and they have all these connections that you didn't know about, and it feels as much like, and this is one of the reasons that um, Black Dossie completely irritated me. Mm-hmm. It felt as if he was showing off his library, as opposed to trying to tell me a story.
0: Well, I, I'm a big fan of people showing off their libraries. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever, like, back when I was a kid, I read a lot of Doc Savage books by uh, Lester Dent. Um, and Philip Jose Farmer wrote this book that I feel is really super influential now on on a lot of current comic book writers, uh, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life, where it purports to be a biography of Doc Savage. And, of course, in true Philip Jose Farmer Way he lays out this family tree so that, like, oh, Doc Savage is actually a distant second cousin to Tarzan, and, the, you know, their second uncle is Uncle Nemo, I mean, Captain Nemo, and, it you know, it it's kind of annoying. Like, I read it when I was 13, and even then I thought it was kind of annoying, but, I mean, it shows that it's mm-hmm. not a new idea, and there are things that you can do with it. I think I got more frustrated when Moore starts doing double duty, where essentially oh, that's not really Jenny Diver, that's Captain Nemo's daughter. And, um, you know, he's got some other hints of these, where in order to make all the pieces fit together, he starts suggesting that Orlando has played a couple of parts throughout history in different roles, that um, that uh, Prospero from The Tempest is in fact somebody else's alchemist. You know, it, it all becomes uh in, instead of this sweeping you know um, ode to imagination it it ends up being incredibly close-minded where the idea is that you know, there's only six ideas in the world and in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, they just all happen to be the characters in his book. You know what I mean? Like once he made his characters immortal and they, it starts moving into what I think of as that very tiring Michael Moorcock, eternal champion kind of aspect where these people get to be anyone and everyone and they get to live out their lives, blah, blah, blah. And so like, for example, in the, prose afterward, there's a point where two of the characters, two of the lead characters are being written about in the 50s or 60s and essentially they become the story of O. And it's one of those things where I'm like, no, this the story of O is the story of O. I mean, it's one thing when you're showing off the library, but now I think Alan Moore's gotten really bored and is kind of like, oh, everybody's doing double duty as everybody else. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of a... It's kind of a puppet show. And again, the thing that's frustrating is because, hey, it's his league at the center of it, it's slowly becoming, you know, his unintended metaphor is like, hey, look at me, Alan Moore, I'm center of the universe now. My characters are all the characters and everybody just happens to conveniently revolve around this one comic series. And it's really tiring. It's really exasperating. I mean... You you literally are
1: feeling the I'm the center of the universe ennui that I felt with uh, Black Dossie. I mean, it's, it's it's the same feeling. It's the same feeling of I am the person in control of everything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that just that irritated me from Black Dossie
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I can understand that. It seemed to annoy a lot of people. I didn't have a problem with it because I guess I felt like Moore was too busy trying to show off his skills, and of course, the areas where he did drop the ball, and I think particularly badly, kind of gave me a certain amount of, not sort of schadenfreude, but kind of like a, oh, he's trying for something and it's not working. Um, What bothers me here, because, why? Because... In that sense, it's kind of like, he doesn't manage to pull it all together for me, but it doesn't feel like the original characters are at all diminished about. Now, I mean, Lord knows, you know, the all ten of the world's biggest Alan Quartermain fans may feel very different about that uh, than I do. But in this volume, like, watching Bertolt Brecht's characters kind of upstage the league was one thing having it be the idea that that mac the knife is also jack the ripper and that jenny diver is also captain nemo's daughter kind of ends up taking three penny opera which is this magnificent achievement and kind of saying like it's yeah it's junk you know i mean i don't think that more really intends that i think he's trying to actually I, I'm not say sure the i necessarily
1: says it's junk but i think it, it becomes oh i can make it better
0: yeah, maybe that's it. I and, it does, and that's kind of insanely patronizing. Um I don't think it's I think it's a natural enough concept. I think the idea is like, oh, see, doesn't this make it more resonant? And what's fascinating to me is it has the opposite effect. It actually makes it less resonant. I mean, one of the great things about uh, you know, the Jenny Diver song where the black freighter comes in and kills everybody, Is It's not really, as a piece of music, I don't know where it fits into Three Penny Opera, so once again, I'm flaunting my ignorance, but it works great in that it may all be happening inside this person's head, and so it creates this person that is much more real to you than Captain Nemo's daughter. Captain Nemo's daughter, who maybe if she'd been in the last five books and developed as a character, might have actually it might have worked but she's basically a three person I, I mean she's like six pages of her before she moves into this section of her life th- you know three pages of which she's swimming naked and not saying anything and then the other three pages she's arguing with Captain Nemo in a, in a dialect that you can't read uh, and so therefore have <laughs> no idea what's going on you know
1: again it, that's such an Alan thing.
0: yeah absolutely it absolutely is
1: like He probably thinks that he's being very um, true to life and, you know, you can't understand the languages, so why shouldn't they have a language that you can't read? But I just find that sort of thing very frustrating. It's, mm-hmm. You're no longer writing for the reader at that point. You're writing to show off.
0: Well, uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, I certainly felt that there were, in the past, like you said, it's a very Alan Moore thing to do. I think that he's done some amazingly good jobs, uh... uh, uh in the past of having that happen, but you know everything that's going on anyway. There's some swamp thing issue or something where everyone's talking in a, an alien uh. dialect. And it doesn't matter because it's all conveyed through the visual storytelling. This one, there's nothing going on other than it's, you know, well, I guess they're fighting, you know? And I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it, ugh. The one thing that I thought was great that probably will not end up being the case for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the the century, the rest of the books, is I really kind of like the idea, and this is why I'd hope that you'd read it to see if you'd like how you would feel about this theory, is the idea that... Throughout the book, there's a few scenes with Death of Captain Nemo and a few other moments. You get the idea of like, yeah, the times are changing. People are dying off. There's sort of a reference. I mean, it's very much the... It's it's kind of like a weird League of Extraordinary Gentlemen remake of From Hell because you get the sense that what you're seeing is the birth of the 20th century in a form that no one can really comprehend. And of course, you know, the later books are going to sort of show how that plays out. But... What I thought kind of interesting was the idea that, you know, Bertolt Brecht's characters from Three Penny Opera come and they're they're singing throughout the book. There's a lot of the book that's in song in a way that, of course, I think uh, knowing now what I do about how you feel about Moore would annoy you greatly. But I thought it would be kind of cool in a way if Moore's point for League, league uh, the three century books, was essentially that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen being literary characters end up being destroyed through the course of the century by music characters, you know? Like, it's sort of like, as music becomes important, as rock and roll becomes the new literature, you know, you're going to end up seeing these characters get their asses kicked by Mac the Knife and Jenny Diver, but later on, the Thin White Duke and... I see.
1: I love that, but at the same time, I almost don't have enough faith in Moore to be that contemporary.
0: Mm. Well, you could be right. Um, I
1: I almost think that Moore, it would be more, uh, or if it happens, it will be seen as this is a terrible thing as opposed to pop culture has changed.
0: Right. Could be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's weird because I sort of feel like Moore started off, you know, being a big fan of contemporary culture and pop culture and the more he's kind of disappeared into this Victorian hidey hole the more you get it's easier to sort of tag him with that idea that he's going to be like yeah everything's shit because it's yeah exactly strange. at some point
1: he became a curmudgeon
0: I think that might be true I'm not sure if it's true but it might very well be true and it's kind I of I think a in, the, in
1: the public consciousness mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah so I think it, I think it'll be curious to see what the other books have lined up but i was uh, amused by how much century 1910 really didn't hold up for me as a book in which at each point that i could point to i'm like yeah this is okay that's all right this is all right and then holding it and being like yeah it doesn't work like it doesn't work in a way that i'm not just a grant morrison hater i've now become an ellen moore hater too Perfect. Join the club. Join the club. Lucky me. Yes, the club of two. How lucky am Although I? Although, I, I'd like to
1: point out, uh, you have made this book sound more interesting than anyone else has previously. <laughs> and now I'm kind of tempted to read it. <laughs> well... Lee Walton, at Top Shelf, if you're out there, feel free to send me a copy. <laughs> yes, after
0: hearing this rousing recommendation, Lee. <laughs>
1: exactly. After, after hearing Jeff say, I'm not sure about it, it might be crap. Now that free- I...
0: Yeah. Now that I've kicked the stuffing out of your best, you know, your guaranteed bestseller that's going to keep, you know, uh, everyone from no, being out on get, the streets. It will keep
1: top shelf and, and,
0: yeah. and rolling in cash for a while. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Believe me, it's in your best interest to send a copy to Graham now. Um, <laughs> because he can hate it too. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just better I bring it to work and mail it to you tomorrow. I think that might be better, better served. Okay, well, that was my point about League, so thank you for letting me... So, I think we covered a I, full three comics this way. This yes, is I,
1: I tried to think how long this will end up being. Oh, God, I know. Because I, I, I have the strange feeling we might actually have more than an hour.
0: Yeah, I know, and I was kind of thinking, you know what the perfect length for a podcast is? 15 minutes. I'll just get Graham to warm up, and then we'll talk about stuff for, like, 15 minutes, and... Um, I, I
1: honestly think a perfect length is somewhere between half an hour and an hour.
0: Do you? Okay. Well, yeah. that's good to know. Uh, I will keep that in mind when I'm editing. We may have to break this into two parts or, I don't know, at this point, six parts. That would be parts. awesome
1: if it yeah. breaks up into,
0: like, three parts. That would be
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> They'll be like, well, we can understand why they never did one again because that first exactly. one was... Because <laughs> we did
1: three in one. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, this is this has actually been great. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Um, yes,
1: I think even if we don't even post this, we
0: should do it again. I think we should, too. We'll just amass this, like, secret tape. <laughs> exactly. We'll be
1: like, here are 72 hours of Graham and Jeff talking about from 2009.
0: <laughs> I can only imagine who will be hitting the PayPal button for that. God help them. Uh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, okay.
1: You go and edit and have a good night, sir.
0: Thanks. You too, sir. This was great. And uh,
2: I will try and get a rough cut to you by Wednesday.